0: Welcome to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. Bullets are flying in the Superstition Mountains of Arizona in 1931 as a well-known area prospector named Knickerbocker is announcing to every newspaper he can find that he is finding gold and leading expeditions into the mountains for a chance to stake their claims. The newspaper articles draw the attention of Adolf Ruth, a retired government paper puncher whose interest turned to lost treasure the day his son Irwin brought him some old treasure maps promising a path to the location of a mine hiding a fortune in gold in the Superstition Mountains. It was the Depression, and many men were out of work, so when news of a gold strike started getting around, new faces were showing up in the Superstitions, and some people were getting irritated with all the snoopers, irritated enough to kill. When old but determined Adolf Ruth showed up with his treasure map at one of Tex Barclay's four ranches covering the entrances to the mountains, they all figured he was just another dime-store cowboy with a 25-cent treasure map. Until he told them the story of how the map found its way to him, through the dying wish of a condemned Mexican revolutionary with family ties to the Peraltas, who were a part of mountain legend. By the time they had guided him into the mountains, and left him alone near a spring. Adolf Ruth only had hours to live. There are a number of versions as to what really happened at this point in the story. But we'll begin with the one given by researcher and writer Tom Colenborn, who recently wrote an article titled, The Ruth Conspiracy for the Apache Junction and Gold Canyon News. In his article, he writes that Ruth arrived in Mesa, Arizona in early May of 1931 and that a previous friendship with a local family named Morse had provided him with names of people who could help him find his way into the mountains. Driving out to the Barkley Ranch at the Three R's in Gold Canyon, he spoke with Tex Barkley about a trip into the mountains. But Barkley suggested that Ruth wait until November before going in, when the temperature would be milder. Starting in mid-June, the temperature in those canyons would rise to 115 120 degrees on the canyon floor. Ruth insisted that he go in now, and Barkley refused to take him, according to this story, thinking there was no way a 78-year-old man in his condition could survive it. As the story goes, Ruth returned to the Morse Ranch in East Mesa, where rancher Morse recommended Purnell and Keenan, two local prospector cowboys who lived in the area and worked for Morse off and on. Prior to Ruth's ride into Willow Canyon, he spent a couple of nights at the Quarter Circle U Ranch in Penal County. It was here that he met Keenan and Purnell. According to a couple of sources, after Ruth left the Quarter Circle U Ranch, a group of men were allegedly overheard talking about killing Ruth for his treasure map. And Ruth was way too open about his map. On May 14, 1931, Purnell and Keenan packed Ruth into West Boulder Canyon from the Barkley camp, that camp being First Water Ranch. The trip was very difficult for Ruth and wore him out entirely. It was a long trip over very rough trails from the First Water Ranch to Willow Springs in West Boulder Canyon. The up-and-down travel was particularly hard on Ruth because of the metal plate in his hip. He suffered immensely making the trip to Willow Springs. Shortly after arriving at Willow Springs, Purnell and Keenan quickly unloaded his supplies, as the story goes, helped him set up camp, and immediately left Ruth to his fate. Ruth did pen a letter to his wife Clara and sent it out with Purnell and Keenan. Even while suffering from all the pain, Ruth was still enthusiastic about his search for the mine. Why he chose West Boulder Canyon for a base camp is still confusing to historians today. Colonborn asks, What compelling reason did Ruth have to camp at Willow Springs in West Boulder Canyon if he believed Weaver's Needle was the south symbol on the Peralta profile map? According to several sources, Ruth had an old Mexican or Spanish map, which we know was given to him by his son Irwin. This map was known as the profile map. Ruth also possessed a USGS topographic map of the region. Ruth also had a compass, a thermos, and a forty-four caliber Smith & Wesson Russian revolver. Somehow the maps conflicted with each other. And here's the second version. On May 13th, Ruth drove to the home of William Augustus Barkley, whose ranch was nestled up against the superstitions. Barkley was well known for his hospitality, and his ranch was often visited by cowboys, prospectors, and other ranchers, and this day was no exception. Fate was dealing the cards to Ruth that day, as it happened that Brownie Holmes, the son of Dick Holmes, you might remember, the man who had stolen Jacob Waltz's gold from under his deathbed, was present. As Ruth became comfortable with the group of men, he started to share the reason he had come to Arizona, along with the fact that he had been given a map from the Peralta family, and that the map showed a prominent peak. If he could get some help finding that peak, he said, he could go it alone. The room must have fallen silent at that time, as the other men there knew what Brownie Holmes's father had done and how Brownie had tried to whitewash the whole story in the years after. Barkley spoke up, saying that, yes, there was a spire landmark there called Weaver's Needle, but that the interior of that wilderness was deadly even for a young man in good shape, much less a man in the physical condition that Ruth looked to be. And that wasn't an insult. Ruth was in his 70s and limping painfully. Here was Adolf Ruth telling a group of strangers that he was holding a map to what was possibly the richest mine in the world. Ruth then asked Barkley if he would pack him in as far as the needle, offering to pay him well for his time. Barkley flatly refused, knowing it would mean the death of the old man. Temperatures in the superstitions were reaching the hundreds now and it wasn't the heat of the summer yet. The canyons were filled with boulders. The mines would require digging if they could be found, and many men had tried. Barkley was adamant. He invited Ruth to stay over at the ranch for a few days before returning home, and during that time, Ruth kept badgering. Finally, and probably by now thinking he wouldn't mind dropping this obnoxious, pestering old man off far from the ranch, Barkley broke down and agreed to pack him in to within two miles of the needle, after he returned from his business trip to Phoenix. At the same time, Barkley was hoping the old man would come to his senses. Two days after Barkley left for Phoenix, Adolf Ruth persuaded two cowboys, who we know were named Purnell and Keenan, to pack him in. It was a grueling and painful ride for Ruth, not at all what he had expected. The two cowboys helped him set up camp before leaving him alone to fend for himself. According to this story, when Barkley returned from Phoenix, he was furious to find that the two cowboys had taken Ruth into the wilderness, and he put together provisions and rode in himself. When he reached the springs, Ruth was not there. Barkley circled the camp, looking for tracks, and shouted. Several more searches were made, and more men were brought out to look, but nothing was found. On December 15th, six months after Ruth's disappearance, the Arizona Republic newspaper sponsored an archaeological expedition to locate ancient Indian ruins in the superstitions. The group was guided by none other than Brownie Holmes and consisted of three newspaper photographers and one archaeologist named Odds Halseth. Along with them, they brought a number of horses, burros, and a dog. Five days into the trek, the dog was heard whining, and one of the nine, went to check on him, finding him sniffing near the base of a tree. Brownie Holmes was the first to investigate. Lying on the ground was a skull, and Holmes picked it up to look at it. At that moment, a photographer, who had caught up, snapped a picture of Holmes holding the skull. He said to the other approaching members of the group, This is Adolf Ruth's skull. Someone questioned him, How do you know that? And Holmes replied, That he had studied the man's features when he had come to the ranch earlier that year and noticed that he had a high forehead one more aspect of the skull was that it had a hole in one temple and rumor quickly surfaced that it was a bullet hole news of the discovery of ruth's skull swept across the nation and reached irwin who immediately left for arizona to gather his father's remains william a tex barkley and deputy jeff adams found all these items with Ruth's remains in January of 1932. In the pockets of Ruth's tattered clothes was found a notebook. The last entry reading, It lies within an imaginary circle whose diameter is not more than five miles and whose center is marked by the weaver's needle about 2,500 feet high among the confusion of lesser peaks and mountainous masses of basaltic rock. He adds one more description and then writes, Vini, Vidi, vinci. Latin, for I came, I saw, I conquered. And below that he wrote, The treasure lies about 200 feet across from the cave. Now these words were taken from that 1895 newspaper article, which contained the information given by Julia Thomas to the reporter, and Ruth had just noted it down for future use. One thing that has driven conspiracy theories is the fact that the medical examiners claimed that Ruth died from exposure, not from murder or suicide. They said the bullet holes were probably caused by the teeth of a larger animal that picked up the skull from the remains and moved it to another location. Despite numerous reports by different pathologists and some fairly recent, none have ever concluded that the holes were made by a bullet. Nearly 90 years later, Ruth's disappearance and death are still being hotly debated. The records of the 1931 missing persons investigation by the Maricopa Sheriff's Office were destroyed in March of 2008. Their files were sealed by a court order until 1982, when they became public record. In those 26 years between the time they were opened and the time they were destroyed, only a few people bothered to study them. As a result, a different story was allowed to grow around the series of actions and events that really took place. That different story being the one you just heard about Ruth staying at the Barclays' Quarter Circle U Ranch on the south edge of the mountains, about the two cowboys taking him in from there to a camp in Willow Spring, and that Barkley was away on business and didn't know Ruth had been taken in, and that when Barkley returned, he rode in alone to try to find Ruth. In truth, Although Adolf Ruth was an aging government retiree on a $42 a month disability pension, he did own a car, and he did have means enough to travel. He was deep into researching potential gold locations, and apparently had visited the superstitions in years past. He knew the Morse family, which owned a ranch on the north end of the superstitions, and shared a common interest in finding the lost Dutchman mine, so it wouldn't be a stretch to believe that Morse had promised to keep Ruth up to date on any findings in that area. Another prospector who was known for taking wealthy parties into the superstitions, where he would help them find and file claims, was Charles Knickerbocker. Knickerbocker had a partner named Charles Sellers, and the two had claims in Labarge Canyon. Knickerbocker, who charged his clients for his mine-finding services, was actively promoting his finds through local newspapers. This had to have aroused anger among local ranchers who were being overrun with vagrant prospectors and long-time prospectors in the area who displayed the bent backs and calluses of men who had spent years in the superstitions looking for gold and who felt a serious threat from newcomers. So there was likely a target on Knickerbocker's back. Beginning in March of 1931, Newspaper articles headlining gold discoveries in the superstitions, all mentioning Knickerbocker, began to surface, with headlines blaring, four important ore deposits uncovered in weeks, or on the trail of the lost Dutchman's mines, or old prospect hole shows riches, among others. This was the Depression, and headlines like these were producing hundreds of down-on-their-luck prospectors, to the point where one rancher, wrote a friend that the hills were dotted with them and livestock was disappearing. To Ruth, who actually had what he believed was a legitimate treasure map leading to the Peralta mine or mines, the possibility that someone might get there first had to have been eating him alive. I can recall at least one account suggesting that he was able to correspond with Knickerbocker and had arranged a meeting. Adolf and son Irwin had met or corresponded with rancher Cal Morse back in the 20s, when they had been referred to him because of Morse's knowledge of the legend of the Lost Dutchman mine. Ruth had his mail sent to Morse's address while in Arizona. That much we know. Morse was a prospector in addition to being a cattle rancher and owning his own businesses in the area, an auto repair shop and some orange groves. Part-time cowboys Leroy Purnell and Jack Keenan worked for Morse at various jobs that summer of 1931, from auto repair to fruit picking. Keenan was the closest to Morse. Keenan and Purnell were both familiar with and had visited Tex Barkley's ranch as well. Ruth did have an interest in the Barkley ranch because it was one of the entry points to the superstitions. There's no doubt he visited there and that he did so on the fated last trip, giving rise to the part of the story where he openly talked about his maps and his needing to get to Weaver's Needle. In June, Leroy Purnell and Jack Keenan did take Ruth to the camp at Willow Springs in Pima County, packing him in through the First Water Ranch on the north side of the mountains, not through Barkley's Ranch, as one version of the story went. Maybe they were trying to protect Ruth from someone or something they had overheard coming from the group that had heard Ruth's story when he had stopped by the Barclay Ranch just days ago. Or, maybe they had ideas of their own. They also circumvented the first water ranch house so they would not be seen. Either Ruth didn't want anyone knowing he had gone in to hunt gold, or Keenan and Purnell didn't want anyone seeing them taking him in. There are conflicting versions as to when and how Ruth was reported missing. Here are the versions. 1. Purnell or Keenan was sent in to bring supplies to Ruth after five days and couldn't find Ruth. Version 2. Barkley rode in alone after one week and couldn't find Ruth. And three, eleven days had passed before Barkley finally went in, alone, and was unable to locate Ruth. No matter which version you believe, one of them came back and reported Ruth missing to Morse, who called Maricopa Sheriff McFadden's office. According to one report, Purnell and Keenan were not very forthcoming with the authorities in the beginning when the missing person's report was being investigated. They, in fact, later admitted they had borrowed Ruth's car and were living it up in Phoenix with a couple of honeys in the days after they had dropped Ruth off at the campsite. Whether they had borrowed the car with his permission or not is not dealt with in any of the research I've done. Perhaps they had something to hide. When Adolph Ruth was discovered missing, it was Cal Morse, not Tex Barkley, who had contacted the authorities. Ruth's wife wired 100 in reward money to Morse to be awarded to whoever found her husband. Funny that it was Brownie Holmes who first found the skull. And when Irwin arrived, he stayed at the Morse ranch It's very curious that Morse called in the missing persons report to Maricopa County because the last place Ruth had been seen alive, according to Pernell and Keenan, was Pima County. One report lists that at some point it was Keenan who rode in to check on Ruth, whereupon he discovered that Ruth was missing. Neither he nor Morse believed he was in danger. All they knew was that they couldn't find him. That story stinks because had he told Morse that Ruth's hiking boots were left in camp, along with his glasses. Morris would have been worried. Maybe Keenan didn't notice those things? It's possible. But it stands to reason he would have searched the campsite for clues as to where Ruth had gone, or a note, and seen the boots, and seen the spectacles. Ruth could have crawled into a cave and been deep enough down not to have heard Keenan's shouts. But Keenan knew how badly the ride in had affected Ruth just days ago. And would have known Ruth couldn't have gone far. So why he wasn't worried is hard to fathom. There was even a story later that Ruth had fallen and broken a leg and wrote a note asking for help as the pain started to intensify, then placed the note in a bottle and dropped it in Willow Creek, where it was found the day after. The man who found it was fishing, read the note, placed it back in the bottle and sent it on its way downstream. Meanwhile, weeks after the missing person's report was filed, Irwin Ruth had showed up at the Morse Ranch and began searching along with Keenan and Purnell, but to no avail. Ruth's son Irwin also hired planes to search the area around Weaver's Needle until he ran out of funds. The newspapers covered this heavily, along with the search by horseback, which was carried out by Tex Barkley, and his close friend, retired Sheriff's Deputy Jeff Adams. Who had signed on for the otherwise busy Sheriff McFadden to assist Barkley with the search. Two days of intense ground heat had worn the pads off their bloodhound and strained the two men and their horses to the limit. It was rough country. Where the hell was Ruth? He could not have wandered far from Willow Creek because of physical limitations, the severe heat, and the rocky terrain. People were starting to ask questions. Was there foul play? Maybe it was the Apache curse. Had he been attacked and dragged off by a mountain lion? Fallen somewhere and lying in a crevice? A lot of things can happen in the wilderness. Cal Morris refused to be interviewed by reporters, and anything he said was going directly to Maricopa County Sheriff's Office, where Sheriff McFadden had his hands full with the Win judd axe murder case in Phoenix. Instead, Tex Barkley and his friend retired deputy Jeff Adams became the point man in the search. But all to no avail. The search ended with no clues. There was no murder investigation, only a missing persons investigation. Then, as we already know, after the search, in December, the archaeology expedition found Ruth's skull. One month after Ruth's skull was found by the archaeological team in Pima County, by the way, Barkley and Adams, in the company of three other men, found Ruth's remains near a boulder a quarter mile from where the skull had been found. Barkley said they'd come upon footprints and cane imprints leading to the spot. Years later, a close friend of Barkley's named Glacier would say the text told him they had found Ruth's remains in a crevice up on Peter's Mesa and brought them down two miles closer to the camp. Now why would they do that? If there was any wrongdoing on Barclay and Adams' part, why would Barclay tell that to a friend? The common assumption, among those who know that part of the story, was that Barclay didn't want a rush of gold seekers on Peter's Mesa. Among the remains found with Ruth were the two maps, and the men who found the remains, somewhat surprisingly, decided not to return immediately and file a report but to follow the map to the nearest location drawn on it, which was a cave on Peter's Mesa. The cave was supposed to have been near a mine. The cave, as it was stated in the Maricopa County report, was empty, and they could not find the mine. You can believe that or not, but there was a sheriff's assistant along with them and four other men, and one would have to believe that with all those witnesses along, no one could keep any wrongdoing a secret forever they were most likely telling the truth each of them figuring they would return later alone maybe but the story is most likely true the whole thing sounds fishy however so what did happen to ruth he was reportedly left at willow creek by his escorts reports vary about plans made for him to return in two weeks because by some reports he said he had no use for a horse in there so one was not left with him which means there must have been an agreement "'that they would check on him. "'When they brought him, "'camp was set up about fifty yards from the spring, "'which was a watering hole for every creature in the vicinity, "'among which included large bears and mountain lions "'back in those days. "'A fire was started, "'and everything seemed to be in good order. "'Pernal and Keenan gathered the horses and headed home. "'Or did they? "'A man, an elderly man, "'with a plate in his hip, who walked with a cane, is left in this spot during the relentless blistering heat of an Arizona summer to find treasure? This man who spoke loudly back at the ranch about his having maps leading to great treasure and knowing exactly where he needed to go is left there all by himself? And there were those, including Ruth's son, who believed that Ruth did not want to be left alone, that he knew he would need help once he got there. Yet Keenan and Pernell, by all accounts, wanted out of there fast. Maybe to get back to Ruth's car and a few nights of driving dates to Phoenix bars? Which we know they did. Many believe Pernell and Keenan would be tempted beyond resistance with greed, knowing the death of Adolf Ruth could be blamed on any number of things. Why, it's happened before in those mountains, so why not again? They have everything to gain and nothing to lose, right? Well, one has to account morals into the situation. It takes a certain kind of man to kill another man, and the question naturally rises, were Pernell and Keenan that type? That's a question we may never be able to answer. Was Brownie Holmes that type? The coincidence involved of him finding the skull is a little over the top, and kind of shines a light on that possibility. When Ruth's body was finally found, he was six miles from his campsite. Found with his body were his camp shoes and a small flask of water. Now take a moment to consider this. Strong hikers have an incredibly rough time of making it to this camp in November, with gallons of water and proper hiking shoes. There is no way that Ruth ever made it out of West Boulder on his own accord, let alone the other six miles to his final resting place. In the summer, those canyons hold the heat like an oven. During the night, Without any direct sunlight, rocks and canyons will still remain warm. It never entirely cools off. There is no way that Adolf Ruth walked with a cane out of that canyon, with a steel plate in his hip, through the basin, over Bull Pass, which would have been impossible, and around Blacktop Mesa, to the place where his body was found. Add this to the fact that according to one manuscript provided by a man who knew Tex Barkley well, Barclay had admitted to moving Ruth's body away from Peter's Mesa. This day and age, a man admitting to moving a dead individual might be brought up on murder charges. And why did Tex have to move Ruth's body off of Peter's Mesa? How did Ruth end up on Peter's Mesa in the first place? A hike up Peter's Mesa in and of itself would most likely be impossible for a man in Ruth's condition at his age, during any time of the year. Even if he started at the bottom of the mesa, fully refreshed, he probably would not have made it to the top. And why was Ruth's skull found three-quarters of a mile from the rest of his remains? Why was there still skin attached to his skull, which there was, even though it had been months since his disappearance? Had it been buried? It wouldn't take long for flesh to rot back there, especially during the summer months. As to the location of the skull, Barclay had later confided in a friend, Gassler, that he had taken the remains from Peter's Mesa and planted them near where the skull had been found one month before. So actually the skull was six miles from the place where the body was discovered. If Barclay and the others had been responsible in any way for Ruth's murder, they would have hidden the skull and the remains. There are any number of hiding places in those canyons. And why did Barclay gather the remains? From where he had found them and then dropped them at another location, announcing they had been found there. Here is what I think happened to Adolf Ruth, and you are very welcome to chime in at facebook.com forward slash 1001 heroes or email me at 1001 stories podcast at gmail.com. During the very tough ride into the Willow Creek campsite with Pernell and Keenan, Ruth became painfully aware that he wasn't going to be able to hike anywhere on foot once he arrived at where they were going. He was exhausted. His hip hurt badly. It was extremely hot there on the canyon floor. He didn't entirely trust Purnell and Keenan, even though Cal Morse had said that they were trustworthy. Both men were in a hurry to leave, but Ruth feared for his life. Ruth had a heart-to-heart talk with them. He was in a lot of pain, it was Barkley, he told them, who recommended this campsite because of the availability of water. But now that he, Ruth, had a better idea of just how rugged this was, he realized that his initial plans of setting up camp miles away from his destination were no longer realistic due to his condition. He told them that he believed that the location he was searching for among the many shown on his map was located on Peter's Mesa and could they take in there. They said no, he was in too bad a shape. The way up there was filled with steep slopes, and even if they bring the travoy for him, the trip could kill him. Ruth was fading fast, and his words, in this heat, and after the strain of riding in, were becoming almost unintelligible. It was like standing in an oven. He may also have been bleeding internally at this point. They agreed to stay the night with Ruth, but that they were leaving the next morning. And the next morning, when Ruth awoke, they were gone. Purnell and Keenan were in a hurry to leave. The old man was going to get himself killed, and they didn't want anything to do with it. They had seen others with gold fever before, and there were men roaming these hills now who would kill a man for a single gold coin. But a couple of hours into their exit, they both had a change of heart. They were leaving this old man there to die, and they weren't killers They turned around with their horses and pack mules and rode back into camp, expecting to find Ruth sitting with a cup of coffee, but Ruth was gone. They circled the camp, looking for tracks, and found the tracks of his camp shoes, along with cane imprints. The old fool had left camp without his boots. They followed the tracks halfway to Peter's Mesa, where they found an exhausted Ruth three miles from camp and trying to climb up an escarpment in the direction of the mesa. His knees and hands were bloody, and his hip was in terrible pain. They both said he needed to quit this whole foolish search. He pleaded that they'd take him the rest of the way. The two men walked away, had a heated conference, and finally came back to Ruth. They tried to talk sense into him, but he refused to listen. Finally, they gave in to what they knew was his dying wish. They rigged a travel and spent the next six grueling hours moving the old man up to Peter's Mesa, hauling the travois up some cliffs with a rope when needed. He thanked them, and when he asked if he could write them a check, they refused. They were already in enough trouble doing this for him, they said. Ruth handed them his car keys and said he wouldn't be needing them for a few weeks. As my theory goes, they left him at Peter's Mesa with his cane, his maps, his water, and his Smith & Wesson revolver. On the way back, they debated on who they were going to tell this to and how, because it wouldn't look good for them if they were known to have taken the old man to Peter's Mesa, and it would look like they were making a play for the old man's treasure. Finally, they decided to tell Tex Barkley when they got back. When they had returned, Barkley was gone on a cattle-buying trip to Phoenix. Well, they decided, might as well have some fun with the old man's car until Barkley got back. When he returned six days later, they told him what they had done, and he was astonished. But knowing something of the old man and his stubborn persistence, he believed their story. He told Keenan and Purnell that if the law became involved, to stick with the story that they had left Ruth at the camp no matter what. Whatever did happen to Ruth was Ruth's doing and nobody else's fault, which was true. He also knew that Ruth couldn't live long upon that mesa without water and food, and he packed accordingly and then rode in, heading for the camp to verify their story, and then toward Peter's Mesa. It had now been 12 days since Purnell and Keenan had left Ruth on Peter's Mesa. The camp had been untouched, with the exception of that first day and night, and Ruth's boots were still there, along with his spectacles. Barclay rode up to Peter's Mesa and looked for sign of Ruth. There were buzzards circling. He shouted, but heard nothing. Finally, he spotted a wrapper on the ground, then some cane imprints. He followed these until they disappeared near a steep drop. He bent over the edge, looked down, and saw Ruth's body lodged in a crevice where he had fallen. Buzzards fluttered up out of the crevice as Barkley worked his way down toward Ruth's remains and saw that Ruth was long dead. His body had been picked apart Barkley was now in a dilemma as to what to do. No one would believe that Ruth had reached this spot without help. Furthermore, the skull appeared as though it was showing a bullet hole, with a bullet-sized entry high up above the left temple and a huge gaping hole at the lower right temple where it had exited. Ruth's gun had not been fired, so it wasn't suicide. The maps and a checkbook were present in his carry bag so it didn't look like a murder for the maps, which indicated to Barkley that the killer already knew where the mine or treasure was and that Ruth had gotten too close. And someone might be looking down his sights now at Barkley as well. So Barkley decided to pack up the remains into a bag and move them closer back to camp, then return and tell the sheriff's office that he couldn't find Ruth. He had come alone, and there was no one to testify on his behalf that he, Barkley, wasn't up to any wrongdoing and this didn't look good and he thought about coming back as well but next time with some company that would provide number one witnesses and number two if anybody was picking off prospectors they weren't going to shoot five men with a deputy sheriff aboard by moving the body closer to camp it would now be within the realm of believability that ruth had made it that far alone and it should be much easier for the searchers to find, and he would lead the search on the ground. Unfortunately, it would be easy for predators to find as well, but there wasn't much he could do about that. Two weeks after Ruth had been taken to the Willow Creek camp, Barkley returned. Ruth was reported missing, and the search began. During this time, Keenan and Purnell assisted Dr. Irwin Ruth, Adolph's son, in searching, but Keenan and Pernell weren't going to give up what they knew, and they didn't want to become suspects in a murder investigation, even though they probably were being thought of as suspects at that time. The pressure must have been intense. They were probably shocked when Ruth's skull turned up a few miles from where they had left Ruth on the mesa. Then they were probably doubly surprised when Barkley and Sheriff Deputy Adams, who were also searching, found the remains a month later, only a quarter of a mile, from where the skull had been found. What they didn't know was that when Barclay, Adams, and the three men searching with them found the remains, along with the maps, still intact, that the five went searching on Peter's mesa, but found nothing. They found a cave with nothing in it, and never found a mine. We instantly assumed they were searching for gold, but they might just have been searching for any evidence of foul play and tracks belonging to Ruth. At some point, Walter Gastler, a close friend of the Barclays, was told by Barclay that Barclay and a friend then packed Ruth's remains down to within a quarter mile of where the skull had been found. At that point, pictures were taken. This information was apparently included in the sheriff's report, which was destroyed years ago. The list of personal effects found with Ruth's remains included his camp shoes, shirt, canteen, checkbook, maps, and tatters of clothing and his pistol. His hiking boots and spectacles had been left at camp. To the murder theory supporters, that meant Ruth never left the camp alive. But it doesn't explain why the maps weren't taken. I can't help but believe that if there had been any foul play, any one of them would have buried Ruth's body. I think it was all a cover-up, but not to cover up a crime. Instead, to cover up anything that might look like a crime. After the recovery of Ruth's skeletal remains in late January of 1932, it was determined that Ruth died of exposure and exhaustion as a result of his trip into the mountains. It was believed by the medical doctors who examined his remains that he died in this manner and not from a bullet to the skull, as claimed by many. A forensic pathologist later examined the skull and agreed with the two medical doctors. They said the holes in the skull were caused by animals, not a bullet. Therefore, it was concluded he died from natural causes. Two modern forensic pathologists today, Dr. Thomas B. Jarvis and Dr. Jerry Lutz, both agreed with the early ruling in Phoenix in 1932. However, with this evidence, people still wanted to believe Ruth died from some sinister plot arranged by people who allegedly knew the mine he was looking for was authentic. And so the listener is probably thinking, yes big deal, he didn't find the cave. But for old Adolf Ruth, he didn't need it and he knew he was standing on top of or near some of the richest gold ore on earth, in the middle of some of the most wild and untamed country in America, with an old body, a blown out hip and legs that could barely carry him anymore, feeling the history all around him, hearing the screams of the Apache, the rifle shots, the sounds of men digging. He had come He had seen, and he had conquered. It was for others to do the digging. He became a part of one of the greatest Western legends ever told. When the news of the discovery of Adolf Ruth's body went national in January of 1932, the legend of the lost Dutchman mine was born. To this day, thousands of men and women still search for the treasure in the superstitions. But there are strict rules on that federal land not to dig anywhere not to change, alter, destroy, or leave any sign that you were there. There have been a number of strange deaths and disappearances in and around the Superstition Mountains. It does make you wonder if there's a curse at work, or, more believable, a very rich working mine that a certain group of people want to keep secret. When these folks got too close, they either died from mysterious accidents or gunshots to the head, and if they were killed near the hidden mine, their bodies were moved to another location. For instance, as the search for Adolph Ruth was entering its last week on July 13, 1931, a local prospector and guide, who we've already mentioned, named Charles Knickerbocker, who had been announcing to all the area newspapers that he had found the lost mine and causing a rush of vagrant prospectors to enter the area, was hit by a car in the small town of Miami, Arizona, and died before he reached the hospital. The car was driven by a man named Rojas who was traveling with his wife at night when Knickerbocker suddenly stumbled into the road and Rojas's car hit him, dragging him 20 feet before he could come to a stop. Rojas was later declared innocent of any wrongdoing. It was almost as if Knickerbocker had been pushed. In 1910, the skeletal remains of a woman were found in a cave high up in the Superstition Mountain. Allegedly, she had a small sack of gold nuggets with her, but there were no signs of what possibly could have killed her or remnants of any type of clothing. It appears as if the naked woman found some gold and then just dropped dead. In 1927, a New Jersey man and his sons were hiking the mountain when rocks began to roll down on them from the cliffs above as if someone had pushed the boulders. One of the boy's legs was crushed. Just a year later, two deer hunters were driven off the mountain when again rolling boulders appeared to have been pushed by someone or something down the mountain towards them. In 1936, another life was claimed by the mountain when another hobbyist, Roman O'Hall, a broker from New York, died from a fall when he was searching for the lost Dutchman mine. In 1937, an old prospector by the name of Guy Hematite Frank was lucky enough to return from the mountain with a number of rich gold samples. In November, he was found shot in the stomach on the side of a trail in or near Labarge Canyon. Next to his decomposing body was a small sack of gold ore. In 1938, a man named Jenkins, along with his wife and two children, were having a picnic on the mountain. During their outing, Jenkins found a heavy quartz rock that he later learned was heavily laden with gold. However, before he could return to the spot, he had a heart attack. His wife couldn't remember the location of the find. In 1945, a book about the lost Dutchman mine was written by Barry Storm, who claimed to have narrowly escaped from a mysterious sniper. Storm speculated that Adolf Ruth might have been a victim of that same sniper. Although Storm died of natural causes, his book, Thunder God's Gold, not only inspired a movie but thousands of treasure hunters to become interested in the story of Jacob Waltz. In the 1940s, 62-year-old treasure hunter James A. Cravey made an attempt to locate the gold mine, but was later found dead in the wilderness of the Superstition Mountains. His headless body was discovered first. It wasn't until six months later that his skull was found. His journey to find the mine was a huge spectacle at the time. He traveled to the mountain via helicopter, Before leaving, he purportedly told his friends he knew exactly where the gold was hiding. He set out for ten days to find the treasure and asked the pilot to come back for him. But when the pilot arrived, Cravey was nowhere to be seen. His camp was intact and only two days' worth of food had been eaten. No one knows why Cravey was beheaded or who killed him, but it is assumed he got too close and died for his efforts. Then there was James Kidd in 1949. The only thing shrouded in more mystery than James Kidd's death is his life. He had no family and a ridiculous sum of money, mostly from investments. But where he got the cash to invest in the first place remains unknown. He spent a considerable amount of time poking through the east ridges of the superstitions. It's possible he found the lost treasure and was making pickups from his stash as needed. Like the Dutchman, he was secretive and standoffish, which is why no one knows much about him. His disappearance was reported on December 29, 1949, but probably would have been reported sooner had someone cared enough to notice he was gone. Several years after Kidd's disappearance, it was discovered he left a half a million dollar fortune behind. An ardent believer in ghosts, Kidd specified in his will that his entire estate was to be awarded to anyone who could prove ghosts existed. Some believe he was murdered for his gold, Another story tells of a man who dropped him off in the Superstitions and continued to check on him each month until he died. His body was never found. In 1951, Dr. John Burns, a physician from Oregon, was found shot to death on Superstition Mountain. The official ruling was that the death was accidental. In 1952, a man named Joseph Kelly of Dayton, Ohio, was also searching for the lost mine. He vanished and was never seen again. His skeleton was discovered near Weaver's Needle two years later. The shot in his skull was ruled an accidental shooting incident. In 1953, two California boys who were hiking on Superstition Mountain also vanished. Unfortunately for these two, nothing was ever found of them. In 1955, Charles Massey, who was hunting with a twenty two, was found shot between the eyes by a heavy caliber rifle bullet. The coroner ruled it an accidental death resulting from a ricochet. In 1956, a man from Brooklyn, New York reported to police that his brother, Martin Zwiotho, who he believed was searching for the lost Dutchman mine, had been missing for several weeks. A month later, the missing man's body was found with a bullet hole above his right temple. Although his gun was found under the body, the death was ruled suicide. In 1958, a deserted campsite was discovered on the northern edge of the mountain. At the campsite were a bloodstained blanket, a Geiger counter, a gun cleaning kit, but no gun, cooking utensils, and some letters from which the names and addresses had been torn from. No trace of the camp's occupant was ever found. A year later, two men by the names of Stanley Hernandez and Benjamin Ferreira thought they had found the jackpot However, what they actually discovered was pyrite, more often called fool's gold. But these two were sure they had found the elusive mine. Whether out of greed or some kind of dispute over how they would handle their newfound wealth, Hernandez killed his friend, Ferreira. And another year after that, yet another beheaded skull was discovered in the superstitions, this one with two bullet holes in it. The skull turned out to be the remains of Franz Herrer, a student from Austria. Also this year, the skeletal remains of William Harvey, Jr. were found. Cause of death unknown. 1960 was a wild year in the superstitions. Robert St. Marie, who had attempted to drill a hole all the way through Weaver's Needle, was killed by prospector Edward Piper. Two months later, Piper was found dead. The cause of death was said to have been a perforated ulcer. That same year, two more men who were hiking in the Superstitions that year became involved in some kind of dispute. Laverne Rowley was shot by Ralph Thomas, who reported that he'd been attacked by Rowley and shot the other man in self-defense. Just days later, a group of hikers found a headless skeleton near the foot of a cliff on Superstition Mountain. Four days after that, an investigation determined it belonged to that Austrian student, Franz Harrier. Five days after that, another skeleton was found, which was identified the next month to be that of William Richard Harvey, a painter from San Francisco. Cause of death? Unknown. Two months later, another prospector from Denver named Walter Mowry was found in Needle Canyon. His bullet-ridden body was removed to the coroners, who ruled it a suicide. The fall of 1961 marked the beginning of the search for prospector Jake Clapp. He'd spent over a decade and a half working through the Superstition Mountain before simply vanishing in July of that year. The police search that fall was thorough, though no trace of Clapp could be found, so they called off the hunt. Three years later, they found his headless skeleton. His skull still hasn't turned up. An elderly couple were also found murdered in their automobile that year. And you heard the name of Walt Gassler come up quite a number of times in this story. He was a lifelong searcher for the lost Dutchman mine. He was found dead in 1984 in the Superstitions. In his pack was found gold ore, identical to that, at least in description, to that of the gold found under the deathbed of Jacob Waltz. Gassler was well known and well liked, and apparently died of a heart attack while searching for the Dutchman's gold. Not long after the discovery of his body, his son contacted author Tom Colenborn, who writes the Colinborn Chronicles, and the son was bearing some of the ore that his father had found. In 2009, a Las Vegas hotel bellhop named Jesse Capen, who had become obsessed with finding the treasure, disappeared on his third trip into the superstitions and wasn't found for three years. Volunteers from the superstition search and rescue organization finally found his remains wedged in a tight crevice "'about 30 feet off the ground. "'It appears as though he had fallen. "'He may have fallen from a ledge above the crevice "'and somehow got wedged in, "'but his official cause of death remains unknown "'or at least unreported. "'There was no trauma to his skull, "'his skeletal remains were returned to his family hole, "'and his bones were wedged in such an inaccessible spot "'that flooding and animals couldn't touch him. Hundreds of books and maps dealing with the treasure "'were discovered in his apartment.' Maybe he got a little too close on that third try. And the most recent one that we have, on July eleventh, 2010, Utah hikers Curtis Merworth and Ardian Charles and Malcolm Meeks went missing in the Superstition Mountains looking for the mine. Merworth had become lost in the same area in 2009, requiring a rescue. On July nineteenth, the Maricopa County Sheriff's Department called off the search for the lost men. They presumably died in the summer heat. In January 2011, three sets of remains, believed to be those of the three lost men, were recovered. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. We hope you take time to enjoy our other two networks, 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, and 1001 Stories for the Road, where you'll find some of the greatest stories ever written, both shows are weekly and new episodes appear every Sunday night, usually by nine PM. Our shows now have their own website one thousand one Heroes is at one thousand one stories podcast dot com. one thousand one Classic Short Stories is at www1001 dot one thousand one classic dot com and our last website one thousand one stories for the road the same. It's at www1001 dot one thousand one stories for the road. Dot com, Lots of great archives at all three for you to enjoy. Until next time, this is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story.